0: so hello and welcome happy friday today is friday november the 10th and this is backyard beekeeping questions and answers episode number 232 i'm frederick dunn this is the way to be so i'm glad you're here thanks for joining me like so many other fridays in the past how many of them 232 apparently so What's going on here? 52 degrees Fahrenheit outside. That's 11 degrees Celsius, 4.5 mile an hour winds. All the video sequences that you saw in the opening were shot just an hour ago. So that's what's going on outside. 52% relative humidity and the humidity is in flux right now because we have some small chances of rain, stuff like that. And uh, all week, it's not gonna freeze. I mean all week going forward. We're safe, day and night, see? Good to go. What are the best days coming up, by the way, if you're in the Northeastern United States, State of Pennsylvania specifically? Thursday and Friday are going to be the best days next week, although you know what? Shocking but true, the weather report can change. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description and you'll see all the topics in order. If you want to know how to submit your own topic for consideration, please follow the link down in the video description. Which takes you to my webpage, thewaytobe.org, and click on the page, Mark the way to be, and you can fill out a form. All the questions that we're talking about today uh, were submitted over the past week. So also, if you didn't catch it already, uh, a couple of days ago, I interviewed some innovators, uh, guys that developed a new beehive that's called the Keeper's Hive. I highly recommend you look at that video particularly for those of you who are looking at ways to keep your lifting light and if you want to prevent swarming, which is going to come up in spring. So this is a great time of year to learn. I think that's good. So moving right on, we're going to start out now, starting with Roger from West Point, Utah. Hi Fred, one of my hives is dying. Found the queen among 30 or 40 workers and uh, she's alive but lethargic no brood or eggs it's a 10 frame double deep and it was my strongest hive but i had a bad mite infestation i gave it five courses of oxalic acid in october but it was too late my question is what to do with the hive it's presenting uh it's being robbed by yellow jackets and other honeybees top box is heavy mostly open nectar And the bottom frames are mostly empty and we're looking at the low 60s for this week and thinking about putting them out for open feeding but not sure your thoughts. I guess here's one of those things where a lot of different beekeepers have a lot of different ideas. That's right. And you know why? Because a lot of different things will still work. So here's here's the thoughts for those of you who are looking at a colony that we know for sure is not going to make it what to do with it. The other thing is I learned something and changed something just this past year. So I've been beekeeping since 2006, but I learned something new that changes the way I manage equipment that's not occupied. So this falls into that category. Uh, You can pull the frames and if you've got these warm days, sure, they're flying and they're headed for resources they know about. In the 60s, even the low to mid 50s if it's sunny outside, they're doing that. They go to places where they have found honey before so if it's already being robbed you might as well let them finish it off and here's why you take away that resource right now this is just you know we're just talking about it there's no absolutes here but it's my thinking that if you take away that resource right now and they know that it's a source for robbing uh they'll go in a frenzy and they'll start looking for other hives in the vicinity to put pressure on so that's number one the other thing is just let them finish it off you have open Um, nectar on some of these frames and uh, that has the high potential to ferment of course unless see you take it and you put it in storage in a freezer you can put uh, any level of water composition in honey into a freezer and stop it from potentially fermenting if you put it in regular storage and it's above freezing you risk fermentation and once that happens you've lost it anyway a third option take the open-celled frames, put them in your dehydrator. If you have one, I highly recommend that people have dehydration tents like VivoSun. They're made for raising plants in winter, indoors, or any place where you wanna raise plants inside. And uh, that's what I use for a dehumidifier because I put a small dehumidifier in there, run fans in there, and you can dry out the honey because it's in open cells. And uh, you can dry it down until it's usable, but that's gonna use up a lot of energy. So someone else wrote me, uh, freezers, horizontal freezers are very inexpensive. That's probably true to buy. And then you go to put your stuff in storage in it. And they're very efficient too, because they're horizontal. You lift the lid of it, all the cold air doesn't wash out and have to be, of course, re-refrigerated. So they have a lot of space if you've got a lot of space, but they're going to consume energy. So look for an energy efficient version. But if you put them in there, you can keep them indefinitely or until spring. And then early spring, put them out when they're still at earth, if you want to. Now, here's the thing about the hives Um, and why I'm going to change what I'm doing. I used to dismantle the hives, you know, put them in storage, take them all apart. If there was a dead out or if there was a late season abscond or something like that, you pull all your frames out, you process them, you put them in storage, whatever you're going to do take apart the hive, take the bottom off, take the brood box off, and use it to clean it up and everything, put it in storage. But, uh, because, which is really, what I'm about to tell you is really rare for beekeepers, but it happened to me. I didn't get around to it. So I had some hives sitting around that were empty. See, they'd already been robbed out. They were already empty, so there were no resources in there for other bees to go after. So the only risk there in an unoccupied hive is what? Wax moths? Small hive beetles aren't much of a threat because they'll go after it if you have a bunch of old pollen stored in there. But if that's clean, small hive beetles also don't have any reason to go in there. So now we've got a hive that smells like bees. What's going to happen in spring? Spring swarming. Now we know the statistics on that. So when people do scientific research, they find optimum places where bees are going to swarm to they're going to leave your hive they're going to bidwag somewhere they're going to go to a final destination now that's more than 100 yards away from your hive that they show a preference for the other thing is we like to say i'm one of them 12 feet optimum height a transition area where the woods transition to a clearing to a clearing that opens to the south or southeast of those woods Now those are optimum spots. I follow those guidelines. But because I didn't keep up with my hives, they stayed in the apiary. And uh, a dead out in your apiary that's been cleaned out, I'm not recommending you leave a pile of dead bees in it, do your maintenance, clean them up, put the entrance reducer on and all the stuff as if the hive were still alive. And you know what happened? They got occupied. I don't even know if they get occupied by my own bees but these are auto occupying hives so what happened was uh, those are in an apiary those have other hives just a couple feet away and they're moving into them one of my swarms this year i highly recommend you look at the video because it was a lot of fun uh there was a queenless colony so the pheromone even of that colony was low i don't know if they had scouts that went out that interacted with a bivouacking colony of bees, changed their mind, and got them to move into a hive with their queen because they had a hive get occupied like that. Very interesting stuff. So here's the reason I bring it up is you have an option. I highly recommend if you're a backyard beekeeper and you want to do some experimentation, and you're one of those people that swarms don't always go to your swarm trap, your designated swarm trap, which is following all of the statistics. You can leave your hive right in your bee yard. Because then if you make a split yourself, you have a hive to put them in, it's already there, it's already staged, it's ready to go. If uh, there's a swarm that occurs and you're not around, chances are scouts will check that out. It's already smelled like bees. The most appealing cavity to bees that are on the swarm will be one that's been previously lived in by other bees. That is number one. They'll even take that over some maybe better shaped or the volume is more accurate statistically Uh, so that's what I recommend for this too as far as the resources I would go ahead and feed them back as far as the space the hive and everything else I would leave it in its position I would reduce it to one box and then put everything else back together but if you've got supers of course take those off what do you think about that I think that would work let's move on to question number two Question number two is uh, Henry from Fairhope, Alabama. We're a mile or so from the coast at the bottom of Alabama. Today's forecast, cloudy skies with a few showers after midnight, low 63 Fahrenheit winds south at five to 10 miles an hour, chance of rain 30 to 90%. Okay. No rain here for almost a month. So it says, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I ran that together. Let me just walk it back. Chance of rain is 30%. The humidity is 90%. Man, at a humidity level like that, it's almost raining already. No rain here for almost a month and uh, we're in drought conditions. So question is different types of honey, sourwood, Tupelo, orange blossom, etc. What is the technique used that limits the supers to that particular flavor? Are the supers placed and pulled just during flowering periods? Are the supers capped when pulled? So on. Okay. And then the next part it says, so again, I do fall asleep often when watching your Friday videos, but I do appreciate your humor and opinions on various topics. And I always rewind to catch up what I missed. You know what? That's what every public speaker wants to hear is that people go to sleep when you start talking. I know that's very common for me though. People that are stressed come and listen to me if they're having troubles falling asleep. I get it, that's fine. If that works, I'm happy for it. But let's talk about this ability to isolate the nectar source, the honey in your hives. And this was interesting too, because I just spoke with um, these guys that developed the keeper's hive. And one of the advantages of it was because they have this narrow, super thing so it's five frames in each super Uh, because there's only five frames they fill up pretty darn quick which means they have a, a short time frame that the bees fill them so in other words when you have a predominant nectar flow going on and instead of adding box on top of box on top of box on top of box so that you can take a picture in front of a hive that has 27 supers on it you can leave it at three boxes And then as they cap the frames you write the date on it you pull that frame out and you replace it right away in the middle of a nectar flow and what you end up with will be frames that have very focused nectar resources because that's the way your honeybees work so your bees work in groups and you can also see this clearly when you look at flow hives i know people don't like to talk about flow hives some people hate them But I want to let you know that this is one of the strong suits of that kind of Hive configuration and it doesn't mean you have to have one to do this. What I'm saying is when you pull the panel off the back, you see the ends of each frame in a Flow Super. And the reason this applies to what we're talking about now is you can see the differences in coloration frame by frame. And because the bees work in groups and then those storekeeper bees inside the hive that take that nectar and then they're responsible for finding the cells that they put it in and all this exchange mouth to mouth, they use enzymes called invertase and they create invert sugars and they take sucrose and they convert it to glucose and fructose and all that stuff. While they're doing that, they're concentrating it in cells that are in clusters on frames. So as the season progresses, like here in the state of Pennsylvania, as we get through the end of April into May, it starts to transition to other nectar sources so we can see the change into clover honey, for example. So now you preserve it frame by frame. But when I was interviewing the guys that came up with the keeper's hive, that was one of the benefits of these small boxes, these nucleus boxes, and he was using medium nucleus supers. I've never used those. That's too small for me. I want them to be deep, but what happens is they fill in pretty quick, which means you preserve the integrity of the predominant source. In other words, your foragers are also going to be hitting other things, but bees are floral constant. They go after the largest collection of a single nectar source that has the highest sugar content, and then you'll benefit from that. So, sourwood and all this stuff Bob Benny talks about sourwood honey a lot and uh, so there are definitely seasons when those would be capped and finished the good news is the bees themselves don't get back into them but when you're talking about the way people process their honey they pull the whole super so if you've got a 10 frame super everything that's been collected over the period that filled that super is in there and most people process it all at once. They uncap it, they put all those frames in the same extractor, they spin them out and they're blending it together. So you lose the individual floral sourced honey, unless that's all that you have in your area for the entire period. So that's where, as I mentioned before, something like the flow frames, and you don't even have to buy a flow hive. If you just get the flow frames and you put those even in a narrow box that has to be modified to accommodate them because their dimensions are different but if you had those then when one is capped you could pull that thing out put it on the bench tilt it back two degrees put your tube in it cycle the frame and drain the honey out and if you had another one on the shelf ready to go you put that in there in the closed position ready for them to continue working it. I see the flow frames as a standalone opportunity to harvest without an extractor, without an uncapping tank. Think about this. It actually works. I know there's people that say that was a lie, it doesn't work. This is my eighth year with that innovation and they do work. And I'm looking for other ways to use just those frames. Because you know what I did at the end of the year this year? Because I have to pull the supers off anyway. I pulled the whole flow super off, loaded them all on a wagon, took them all into the building, and put them all on racks, and drained the frames where you normally would have to uncap them, put them in an extractor, run them through a centrifugal process, sling out all the honey, and then run it through a filter and all that other stuff. But instead, I put them all on racks, open them all up, all of them at once, because I didn't have to worry about honey dripping down inside a beehive because they're out of the hive. So then the light bulb goes off. Why don't I just pull individual, you can't just pull a frame out and go process it. You have to have a replacement to go in because of the way the hive is configured, they form the back wall of the hive with the frames. So, but if you had a special box built just for them, you could pull them individually, swap them out, let them keep building them up. It's easy to lift them and inspect them if that's the way you want to look for your stuff. I think that's a winner for those who want to preserve individual floral sources through the year. Now, when we get to the end of the year, that's why I didn't care. See, we get to the end of the year. Here, that ends up being asters and uh, we get goldenrod. Goldenrod was a heavy nectar flow this year and it crystallizes almost the minute you put it in a jar. There's so many particulates in it. But, um, so at the end of the year, cycle them all together. So in other words, I had a five gallon bucket underneath and I had four out of the seven frames processing at the exact same time. Opportunities, so smaller frames, pull them frequently whenever they capped you can also do this we talked about this around here when we talk about the nucleus hives being the hive instead of just a resource hive if you had a five frame base and a five frame next one up the two bottom boxes become brood and combination resources so brood nectar pollen all together by the time you hit that third box it's nothing but honey and then if you want to when that third box is full or 90 percent full Swap the frames out, put new ones in, leave the same height. You don't have to keep adding levels. See? And I think by not adding levels, you accelerate the honey production. I don't know. Just, just throw my ideas out there and you can shoot holes in it if you want to. But those are some ideas that I have on that. Question number three. This comes from Jono from Foothill Ranch, California. Great interview. And uh, being in the game so long, they obviously have all the honey extraction equipment. So, we're talking about uh, this interview again with the guys from the Keeper's Hive. Google it, it's pretty cool. All right, so anyway, it says uh, honey extraction equipment and no flow hives. Just wondering if any backyard peaks have a two by five over five deeps with a common flow hive super on top. So, now what John is talking about is, so we have the five frame nuke, five frame nuke, double them up. So they're side by side, two separate hides. So we go two levels. So now we have five over five, five over five, which is the equivalent of two 10 frame single laying straw deeps, but now they're vertical and could there not be a configuration where you push those together. And obviously now you need a queen excluder, right? Because we can't have these two colonies blending together. But then would that top box work as a flow super and then let them really ramp up their honey production on that and i say sure why not you can modify that in fact going back to the guys that we were just talking about because he's talking about the two five over five but you know what else they had on their website and the website is the keeper's hive by the way if you want to google it they have uh, the one queen method is what we talked about and was the focal point of the interview but on their website they have two queen hives right which are honey production hives so in other words it's two lengths for all tens it looks like deeps and then they, they have these roofs that taper up and then there's a center be deep that's going to be the common box between these two hives right so again i have to guess they've got queen excluders over their single deep there are lots of beekeepers that practice single deep brood management i think it works works in my state i was talking with steve Rapaski, who used to be the president of the pennsylvania state beekeepers association and uh, it's all he does it's all he runs so very interesting if you had two deep brood boxes together and look at that configuration and instead of putting a standard langstraw 10 frame in the middle you could put a Flow super in there and for those who had problems getting them filled out flow frames are not normal by the way they're large they're thick this is why sometimes maybe people have problems getting your bees to finish them off i get my bees to finish them off here but let's be solid about that they only go on uh, colonies that are really strong to begin with so this was a really good year for me some people did not have such a good year but if you have two hives contributed to a single center column that's just for honey, if honey is your goal, that's a system I would take a hard look at. And again as described here by O, you could you could do the you know, the 5 over 5 on two sides, bring them together and then make a modified adapter and then have your flow server either way would work. You know, I'm just Thinking, and then you're only lifting those five frame boxes. But for those of you who've never lifted a flow super, when that thing is full, you're lifting a lot of weight. So, deep, heavy, but yeah, that would work there. Again, think about just the flow frames. I mean, I'm not trying to talk you out of flow hive because I mean, they're cool, they're awesome but you could make do with just flow frames and then you have a whole different method of extracting your honey that's very easy. Question number four, Diane from Warren, New Jersey. Heading into my first winter with a pretty weak colony. It's a late June cutout, devastated by a raccoon. Learned at last frost, learned a lot fast sorted of things out for this winter with a hive alive fondant pack top and three sides of insulation i am looking to come up with a better year round inner cover emergency feeding setup inspired by yours but suited to our milder climate zone 6b tending towards zone 7 they're a no single length deep though i intend to standardize on eight frame mediums my swarm collecting friend slant mentor has promised me a couple of early spring swarms. I give my chances at getting the current colony through winter as pretty low, but they're very laid back, hard workers. And my mentor says their genetics are worth trying to hang on to. So for the future, I've got two questions. She says, is the reason for the hole in the standard Langstroth inner cover simply to provide access to feed when needed? And if so, you screen off that hole or otherwise create a solid barrier under the telescoping cover. So first let me describe what that hole is for. I should have been better prepared. Anyway, look at this. This is the standard inner cover. It has been this way for a very long time and i know a lot of people use this hole for venting for feed and for a lot of things like that but guess what it's really for it was never designed to be open it was never designed to be a vent it was designed to receive a bee escape that's right so it was a piece of kit that served as your inner cover important because it keeps your outer cover the telescoping cover from being glued down to your hive with propolis right Plus that outer telescoping cover protected that top joint so water didn't seep in and stuff like that. And then so the bee escape was inserted in there and uh, you would pull that off and if you were going to harvest honey then you just, you already had your inner cover right there, you put it underneath your super and the bee escape was there and the bees would go down through that and then you cleared your super and then you are ready to remove it. And guess what? When you removed it, the inner cover was already there because the inner cover was also your bee escape. You just drop down the lid so it wasn't designed to be an access for food it wasn't designed to be a vent and so on now that we got past that could you just block it up yes you sure can you can just take a piece of wood and lay it right on top of it and close it up and the bees will propolize it and help that piece of wood hold its position and then you can pry it up later if you ever need to use that hole for something else Number two, here it says, you've said that bees don't chew or propolize aluminum. Have I got that right? So a sheet of double bubble could function as the last layer under the outer cover. Okay, so one part of that's true. I haven't had the bees chew through the aluminized face of double bubble insulation. However, the propolizing part, they do put propolis on it. So they put propolis right on aluminum foil. They put it on your double bubble. So if you lay that, for example, here's one of the ways I like to use it too, around here. The nucleus hives, they are wooden hives, really nice ones that I got from Better Bee. I paid for them, they're not given to me. Some people are suspicious that I have a connection with Better Bee, and I do not. Um, When I put the double bubble on top of it, and then I put the migratory cover over the top of that, and they haven't chewed it at all. And they do propolize it right along the tops of their frames. So it eliminated the space over the top of the frames that bees would otherwise be able to pass over, right? But it added a layer of insulation and defeats all air leaks that are potentially there with a migratory cover. If there's any little openings and stuff, this is very important because look at the time of year we're in. If we're pulling in our covers and stuff like that, I highly recommend using something like double bubble now i realize what i'm describing here is not what your question is asking but i'm covering it just in case people are thinking about other ways to use it so you could put the double bubble under your inner cover as a joint sealer as a gasket that's pretty flexible now what's being asked here by diane is could we put the inner cover on then could we put double bubble over that and then your outer cover over that yes you could and of course the double bubble would then again keep the bees from chewing through plus it provides a space underneath that's soft that's lightweight that you could put fondant under there or something like that and then have the insulation value above it which is very important so it has a lot of uses and yes you can use it like that the bees haven't chewed it they do propolize it so that's the only difference and that's it, thanks for that question. I think it's good and appropriate for this time of year. Plus, if you've got some weird boxes, this is another thing I've thought about this year. It always happens if you've got old equipment that when you start looking at your wooden boxes, uh, worst thing you can see out there on, you know, second week in November is little bee faces looking out between a rotted joint or where your two hives come together or you didn't do a good job of dressing everything off and now it's too late for them to propolize it up. If you cut a three quarter or one inch wide strip that runs down the sides, edges of all of that, you, you pry that box up, feed that strip in there and let it sit right back down on it, it's a gasket. You just closed it up, works great, doesn't look good. Who cares what it looks like? It's functional. So you can use double bubble to seal those joints now. You don't have to, or you can, some people wrap their hive. We have members of my bee club that use double bubble to wrap the entire beehive. I've never done it, but uh, the big thing is stop drafts. That's true for chickens, it's true for livestock, true for bees. Stop drafts, they can manage a lot of things if they're insulated and they have draft stopping, insulated above. Okay, next question, number five, comes from Mark in uh, Freeman, Missouri. I have a question about building up resource colonies, which I plan to do next spring. If I understand you correctly, you can just take a couple of frames of eggs and larvae and nurse bees attached along with frames of resources and put them into a nucleus hive and they will produce a viable queen. Is that correct? I've always been under the impression that you need to have a huge colony of bees in order to effectively raise queens. So I think Mark is asking two different things here because queen builders, when you say raising queens, that's where the little warning signs come up for me. Splitting a colony is much simpler than queen rearing. So for example, if you're doing grafting and if you're raising queens and things like that, you are gonna have to build up a large colony and you are gonna have to have a lot of nurse bees because there's gonna be a high nutritional demand on those nurse bees. But that's not what we're talking about if we're just doing a split you can do it with minimal so what is the minimum number of bees required to have a colony that functions in other words how many bees do we need in spring during the time when you would be doing a split like this how many bees are necessary to do all the in-house work all the guarding on the landing board attending to the queen flying out and foraging And be able to do all of these things at one time without suffering from a loss of uh, temperature control over your brood frames and things like that. Uh, 5,000, so count your bees. It's easy to estimate how many thousands of bees are on a frame. Count the cells sometime on a deep Langstroth frame. A single side that's all capped, will yield more than 3,000 workers. So a single frame that's capped on both sides with pupa will produce over 6,000 workers. So in a single frame, we've hit our threshold. Now, I like to use multiple frames because it helps them cluster around them better and preserve them, keeping them warm. So more is better, but you could, in theory, get by with fewer and then you help relieve some of that stress for foraging. So we take some of the workers out of that um, other area where they have to bring resources in because some of the things that happen in spring would include bad weather. So if you did that split, your foragers need to go out and you did put some resources in there, but now it's gonna rain for the next two weeks. I highly recommend that when you're trying to do something like that on such a minimal level, that you have some kind of feeder on your nucleus hive. And then what would you put on there? For me, it would just be sugar syrup because that gives them the carbohydrates. They're gonna be uh, using up a lot of energy per bee because we have a smaller colony, therefore the individual bees are gonna be higher consumption bees because they're gonna burn themselves out, generating warmth if you have cold weather because we know that 94 to 97 degrees is preserved over the pupae and any developing larvae, right? So keeping that temperature when the weather's bad outside uses a lot of energy. Here's the beauty of transferring a frame of capped brood. When you put that in there, they don't need uh, pollen resources because they're not feeding them. They're in the pupa state. They just need to keep them warm. And then as they start to emerge from those cells, now we have these new workers and these older workers can start to migrate to other jobs in the hive. And then they move out, then they're foraging, and now you're kicking. So the other part of this is um, it's called a walkaway split. You can just pull out make sure that you have cells with eggs, open larvae, right? Eggs are critical. Now, then we're counting on them to pick one of those in the absence of the queen, because based on this description, the queen would be left behind. Uh, They have to make a new queen. So this takes them a long time. And now we're 30 days out from seeing any new brood In that colony other than what you transfer with them. So what I highly recommend to relieve the congestion in the colony that you're doing the split from, is that you find the queen and remove her with these two frames. And then what you leave behind is the colony that now has to make the new queen and then they have to catch up. But they have the advantage because their forages are already naturally going to that hive. They have more resources, more infrastructure. The new colony that you're producing requires more work. So if you move the queen with them, she's also now an insurance policy. They've cut down and if not eliminated their swarm tendency from the colony you pulled them from. And if they fail to produce a new queen, 30 days out, you see no evidence of a new queen. All the brood has gone. Uh, By that, I mean there's no more capped brood. We don't see evidence that anything is in production. Then we can now rejoin these frames. Now, one of the things I'm thinking about for this year, and I'm going to share it with you now, is when we do that, we automatically put in new frames for them to draw out and build on Uh, the colony that we're pulling our split from. But what I would suggest is if you took three frames out, let's say put three blank frames back. So these would be in the one and five position or one and seven. I highly recommend larger boxes if we're going to pull from them because these are not resource hives. We're making a split. So I highly recommend then that you use these spacer high frames and they would be the same number as what you removed. So if you took three out, three spacer frames in. So these are solid frames, some insulation value, and of a material that your bees will not chew. And so when you leave that in there, you gave them a smaller space, less to have to work with. And then once we establish that, they actually produce a new queen, the queen has been mated, you start to see eggs, then you can pull those spacer frames out and restore drawn comb or foundation that you want them to work. So, because if she weren't producing. Now we have space frames to pull those out and the frames that we took out, we can now put back in and center them up and we still have room in the box to do it without having to pull something out. That's what I'm doing this year, just sharing what uh, I'm gonna do. But yeah, you can do it with two frames. Number six comes from Joe from St. Pete, Louisiana. It says, always a pleasure and thank you for what you do. I have heard not to read. I've heard not read that at night, a red light cannot be seen by bees. Tonight is the third attempt with a red light. First two times I was very slow with my movements. First time seemed fine. Second time they seemed to fly a little too much. And I was joking a little and made it okay. This time double deep with two nukes. Uh, So a month and a half looking to grow them in my Florida winter and board feeder at a five, let's see, board feeder in a five foot, what I would call snorkel as a beehive entrance. Change the feeder and none got out. Figured I'd look under the top and check their status. They got buzzy. I squatted down. Good move. And B was able to see me and sting my neck. No background light. Is there proven science? In the red light, invisibility. Okay. That's interesting there. By the way, the snorkel thing, running the entrance up and away from the hive. That's actually worked for a lot of beehives. It's very interesting and something I'm going to be fiddling with this coming year. When I put a observation hive in, that's going to have a very long, clear entrance and exit from the building. So we can see them traveling to and from. It does work. Now the red light thing, red paint, red color is what they've documented. So that's different from an emissions, from from... A source of light that's different from something that has a color so the argument is that bees don't see red well they, they see it they don't see it as red they see black so here's the other thing and of course the, the picture from today was my red LED light now these I want to show you this because see how when I light my hand the color is even all over my hand some of these are focused so then when you zip it in And now look at my hand right there, bees do see that. And how do I know they see it? Because they have observation hives and when I put it on the pinpoint function and if I shine this inside the hive, uh, they rush over and collect on wherever that little beam is in there. So they see it, they sense it, they go after it. They will do that less if it's the wide soft beam. Here's the other part. If I were going out, and by the way, for those listening, I don't recommend working bees at night, but I realize now it gets dark so early some people kind of have no choice, but you're going to have a bunch of crawling bees, right? Uh, And one of the things that Joe did right is once he realized he had a bee that was out to get him, he ducked down. Now that would work in daylight. Kind of the person whose head sticks up the highest is going to get the bee's attention and likely to be stung. Uh, Even more so if they have really black hair, dark eyebrows, high contrast stuff like that and being taller Like if you get a bee that's buzzing your head and you duck down You can uh, get it to kind of not pay attention to you anymore So here's the thing Um, If you go out at night the bees do get disturbed they fly out they don't see very well Um, I would take I have these out in my Observation Hive building. I have another one that I used years ago. And uh, I would put layers of red on this. In other words, like bread wrappers that are red, uh, that have tint in them. Sometimes it's amber, umber, whatever the colors are. And I diffused it down until I could see, but the light was not bright. These are pretty bright. And by the way, uh, these, it's marked red, but these are very inexpensive these LEDs, single LED. Um, So what I did was by using a rubber band and putting red cellophane over the front of it, uh, I got it down so dim that eventually they did not pay any attention to it. So you want a wide beam and you want it to be as dim as possible where you can still see. Here's an area where our vision is much better than a honeybee's. Uh, They see movement better than we do. So they're looking for contrast and at night, this is why they're grounded. They can't fly, they can't navigate visually. So they just know they're mad and they go after you. But uh, yeah, so take more stuff on it and uh, make sure that you're wearing boots. Use the layering system because you may have, before you know it, bees climbing up your pant legs and uh, going places where you don't want them But the science about their ability to see red light I kind of don't even need to do a dive on that and that's because I've I've observed it myself so when you focus a red beam somewhere near a beehive or shine one on the landing board and see if any come out and investigate it and follow it around if they do they're seeing it so you're going to want to diffuse that light even more so moving on to question number seven from Troy from Lebanon PA I have two Flow Hive 2 Plus units with the pest management trays. I use mineral oil in the trays. Is it okay to keep using the mineral oil through the winter? Should I clean it out and put the trays in dry? And if dry, should I flip the trays upside down so they do not catch water? Okay, so for Troy, it depends on which of those trays you have because they have two designs now. I like any hive that has a screen bottom board with a tray under it that's completely enclosed. This is the original Flow Hive bottom tray. It's pretty cool. It's got compartments and everything because if you tilt it forward then of course this preserves the moisture in each one. And we're saying that we've got mineral oil in there which is good because what happens? destructor mites fall through and they get stuck in the mineral oil, they don't climb back up and rejoin your bees. That's what we're thinking about. And then in the winter time, see the configuration, these edges are square. If water built up in here, and it does, because condensation forms inside the hive, drips down, goes through the screen, into the tray, great place for water. But in the wintertime when we get freezing temps down there because the warmth inside the hive rises, it doesn't go down and warm the tray. Uh, it'll freeze and crack these out. So then when the winter time came, we would just flip them over, nice flat bottom, slide that back in and that's what's described here. So you would leave it like that. It's a condensation that goes down here, rolls off eventually and does not impact uh, breaking it out when it freezes. However, they have new trays. So these are the new versions, they're much better. The plastic is more pliable. You wouldn't do this with that white plastic, when you would crack that thing out. So the problem is upside down, see all the troughs, all the catch areas. It does have little weep holes in it. So there's one here, there's one in every corner. So if it were upside down and water dripped down on it, it would find its way to these weep holes. However, along these edges, you would still trap water there. The good news is, If it froze, it would expand. But do you need to flip it over? No, in my opinion. I always recommend that people have at least two of these. And the reason is when you go out there, you need to pull your tray, put the new one right back in. You shouldn't have to pull it out and then go clean this up and then bring it back later. Especially when we're talking about winter time. You still want to know what's going on in your hive in the winter time. That's why I highly recommend the new style of tray put them in the correct way just like this let detritus fall in there and I do agree we don't need mineral oil in the wintertime so much so if you wanted to make it sticky you can also just spray it with pan cooking spray or something like that but if you don't get out there very often there's going to be a lot of buildup down here moisture I mean the condensation everything's going to collect in here that's why you're going to have to cycle these out through the wintertime So trays do add another level of maintenance to your hive, but I think it's good maintenance because you can pull this stuff out and who doesn't want to sit at their kitchen table looking at a bunch of detritus on a January morning with the sun streaming through your window and see what's going on inside your hive and see if you can find Varroa destructor mites and things like that. So don't flip them, keep them in right set up. Yes. Get rid of the mineral oil. And you could spray it with cooking spray or something like that just in case rotostructor mites drop in there. They'll get stuck on that and you can find them. So if you have the old white trays, I would go on the website and get the new ones. So that is question number seven. Question number eight comes from Dahlia from Cork, Ireland. I hope I'm saying that name right, by the way. What kind of tote or bucket do you use to store and remove horizontal land hives frames? So far I bought so many storage boxes but none of them I found that has the right dimensions to store the frames in the upright position. Okay, so today I'm going to do a shout out. I haven't done a shout out for a while and this is good news because this is a small channel I do like to give a shout out to small channels that are kind of getting going. And uh, I'll put a link down in the video description, but if you want to just go straight to it, I'll give you the name of the channel. It's called B-Log with Super B-Shirley and BBSBs. The title of the video you're looking for is lay Frame Holder that fits inside an Iris 103 quote, 103 quote. 103 quart tote okay and it has wheels she's got some some problems with her frame and stuff but what i want you to watch that video for is uh, this is something i did when i first started keeping bees and i needed a way to get my frames out of the line of attack so in other words if you're pulling frames which i did i didn't pull full supers very often we pulled individual frames and then i wanted to put those because I was not using queen excluders, but I had not yet learned to also not use upper venting and also not have upper entrances. So what used to happen to me is I had some brood up in the top boxes. And so I'd be trying to pull honey and two of the frames in a honey super would have brood in it. So then I was pulling individual frames. So was pretty easy, shake the bees off, put them in a tote. And then the totes don't have very strong sidewalls. So when I was trying to put them in there and the same problems, they all lean against each other. So we needed to space them out. So what I had a bunch left over because I designed and built my own house. So what I'm sitting in right now, so apparently it's holding up. Uh, and I used in the basement, we used metal stud walls. So I had a bunch of leftovers. So I took these metal stud walls, they're galvanized and we could cut them and bend them and shape them. And we created side rails with them. So I created a standalone frame rack out of these metal stud walls. And then, so once you fold them over, you drill a hole, you pop, rivet them, however you want to keep them together. There are also sheet metal screws that will screw right into them and hold them together. So I thought about that and I built my frame, my rack out of that. And then that did a lot of things. It took all of the weight of the frames full of honey in there, which is a lot if you've got a big tote. And I left it on the wagon. So in other words, we could fill one of these really big totes uh, the honey frames would be a lot of weight, but then you just wheel that right over to your extractor and then we're uncapping and going into the extractor right from the tote and then putting them into another tote. So um, what uh, Super B Shirley did was it a wooden frame. So when I see a wooden frame, I'm trying to think down the line, it's going to get honey on it, it's going to get a lot of other things. You're going to need to be able to hose it out Uh, We don't want really porous material, in my opinion, so I think using uh, sheet metal, angle iron, things like that, you can make your own rack pretty easy. If you're not too concerned about the cost of it, if you ever look at the way a garage door opener is suspended from the ceiling, you'll see angle iron that's already got a bunch of holes in it. Uh, Those come in a lot of preset lengths, and then you can cut them with a sawzall or with a hacksaw, whatever you want to but you could bolt those together so you can actually make a rack out of those any size because the holes are already in it and uh, you'll just cut them to length and make your own rack that gets inserted because here's the other part. Uh, One of the things I liked about Super B Shirley is that her rack could be pulled out, put on the table. What I ended up doing with my racks that were made out of the stud wall, the metal stud wall material, is um, I ended up gluing those to the interior wall of the totes that I was using and had sheet metal screws going through from outside. And that way they made the side walls of the totes rigid and now I had a stackable system. Because just the physical weight, if you did not fortify the side walls of these things, they would bow out and cave down on each other. And I think I was using Thermos brand. So today for the standard Langstroth frames, I use the Hive Butler totes. But when it comes to the lay hives, their frames are different, they're taller, they're a different dimension. So it does require some custom building. So what Super B. Shirley did, and please follow the link, tell her I said hello, watch the video, and maybe get some good ideas for how to make your own tote. But those definitely fit. And I realized that Dahlia is in Cork, Ireland. So I would go tote shopping based on the dimensions of the rack I make. And then uh, think about either bonding it right to the tote itself. And one of the things that I liked uh, also about my metal frames is that these stud walls only have a solid side and they're kind of U-shaped, right? So you can visualize that, open on one end. So the solid side is what I put right up against the interior wall. Now that meant we had this U-channel that you could see from up above, which means that if you're putting your frames down they would go between that channel you wouldn't have a problem with reduced sidewall space. So, lots of good stuff there and please, uh, so that's my shout out for today. And uh, now we're into the fluff section because we're at the end. And uh, oh yeah, on my website, the YouTube channel, which is Frederick Dunn, Uh, which hopefully you can find just by clicking my name under this video, Uh, there's a social area where I've put up um, a survey. And the survey is when going to beekeeping conference, what would you consider to be the high point? Now the way the surveys are on uh, Google here is I only got five choices, but I'm gonna share with you because there's 225 participants already and I just posted it last night. So these are the categories. I wanted to know what brings people to a conference because here's the thing. I went to the Pennsylvania State Beekeepers Association Conference. And uh, the association is huge. It's our state. I mean, we have small associations. The Chesterfield Beekeepers Association by itself has over 700 members. So when you get a conference that's statewide and you have such a small percentage of beekeepers showing up at it, why aren't they going to the conference? In other words, what's not there? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not thinking about starting a conference. I'm just collecting information because I want to know. I know what brings me to a conference. And, uh, well, sometimes if I'm the speaker, that's what brings me there. They ask me to come and talk. But for the State Beekeepers Association, I was not invited to speak. So I was just there like everybody else, just to hang out and see what's going on. So, The categories are this, I'm gonna tell you ahead of time then I'm gonna tell you what people are saying is their most favorite. So number one, I put down time for fellowship between presentations. That is one of the things I personally like when you go to any kind of conference. One of the worst things you can do to an attendee who's watching a presentation is get behind schedule and then let these presenters do a microphone handoff and you go straight into another hour long presentation. At the end of every presentation, there should be some kind of break. Five minutes, 10 minutes, let people get coffee, let people change their seating, let people leave if if they want to. Nobody wants to walk out in the middle of someone's presentation. So um, these little breaks in between help people have the opportunity to talk to each other because if they're only showing up, there is conversation before the presentation starts. For the afternoon or for the morning session but please make a break and then let people leave if they want to or change but they might have seen a friend two tables over and they can't go sit with them yet so these are things or they start a conversation with somebody behind so on anyway time for fellowship between presentations very important so is that something you like number two i put Current science presented by researchers or known academics. So which of these things are important to you? The third choice would be commercial presentations. How to earn money with beekeeping. We go to conferences, we see those, and uh, that might be why a lot of people are there. And then the fourth one is vendors that offer deals on equipment or consumables. In other words, you to go to the conference because I can cover the cost of the conference, travel there, my overnight stays and meals and everything else because I'm going to buy a bunch of equipment from this vendor who's given us a break on the cost of the equipment and of course no shipping because you're going to haul it yourself and then the last category they offered do you come because there are presentations about honeybee biology over management and hives and by that I mean are you there to really learn more about the bee as a species Do you just want to know about the animal what is it about bees not so much a dense presentation on what hive to put them in how much insulation to provide when to feed what to do how to you know what i'm saying so of those for the first 225 respondents who have already marked uh, their preferences the number one thing that gets people to a conference current science presented by researchers or known academics the number two Please pay attention if you're a person putting together a conference for your group. Time for fellowship between presentations is the number two most popular thing that people want at a conference. This is just based on, of course, the survey on my channel. So, and then number three, they want presentations about honeybee biology over management of hives. So they want to know more about bees. That's number three. Number four, they want vendors that offer discounts, equipment, stuff like that. The least important reason people go to conferences by far is commercial presentations, how to earn money with beekeeping. That is not even a close call. Six percent of the respondents chose Commercial Presentations, How to Earn Money with Bees. Number one was pretty much the standout. Current science presented by researchers and non-academics, 39% of the people that did that. So would you please also uh, follow this link, which is going to be down in the video description, and click whatever is most important for you. I think um, we have an opportunity to kind of provide some influence over those who are setting up conferences and how they arrange their time. What is most important to the attendees? What would bring you back? See what I'm saying? They cost money. Uh, Clubs put them together. And uh, I think it would be great if we understood what gets people there. So also in the fluff section, guess what? Hive Live Fondant out of stock. They sold out again. So there's that. I hope you got what you needed if you're using them. So what do you do then? If you were going to get it, you can't use it. Well, it's time to shift to sugar or something else because I understand you're going to have people cross their arms and say, don't feed your bees. The best thing for your bees is honey that they saved from the previous season. That is true. What I'm trying to do is keep people from opening up a hive in spring and finding a starved out colony of bees. And it's true, like maybe I didn't even need all the fondant I put on last year. The bees demonstrated I didn't because they never consumed all of it in every hive. However, those that did need it may have otherwise been dead. And let me be devil's advocate. So we have the other people that say, well, if they wouldn't make it, then they should die. In other words, if they couldn't survive on their own and didn't store up enough resources and they need supplemental feeding in order to survive, you should get rid of those bees anyway. So that's a Darwinian thinking, right? Live and let live, right? But for me, I still look at them as managed livestock and I like to see if that's what saved them. So if I can do that and it does save them or I get healthier bees out of it or something like that, I'm on board with that. We're going to see how it goes, but they're out of stock anyway. So dry sugar and let that be a desiccant. You'll see, you'll hear a lot of people say, um, dry sugar works as a desiccant. It's going to absorb so much moisture. It absorbs 1% of its weight in moisture. So be careful about that. It really isn't a great source of pulling humidity out of the hive. Uh, but what it does do it means that you can put dry sugar in there mountain camp method you'll hear that discussion that's a piece of paper on the top bars of your hive sugar sprinkled on it oftentimes you'll see the bees hauling that sugar right out of the hive if you do that too early in the year or something like that bees don't like free material just dumped into their hive so don't freak out and think you can just pour dry sugar between frames and the bees are going to be yay sugar and they're going to use it you can't force feed it to them or you shouldn't because it's just work for them. They're going to get rid of it. So if you put it in a reservoir, like if you put a rapid round up there and you put dry sugar in that, it keeps the sugar there and enough moisture does collect on the sugar that it will start to solidify. So it becomes like a candy chunk, right? So these things are inexpensive ways to provide an emergency feed resource for your bees. And then the mention earlier was that uh, inner cover uh, which we have the oval opening which as i explained is really for an escape board it's not for feeding but you could put a piece of newsprint over that hole you could dump cover that whole inner cover with dry sugar and then even though it's dry paper that it's on condensation eventually will work its way into that paper and then the bees will chew through that and they'll, they'll use their sugar as they need it again it's not a prime food resource for your bees. It's an emergency stock. So, but if you decide to just let your bees die, that's up to you too. Uh, the other thing is now is a great time uh, to go out. We have the cold weather and everything. Look at your landing boards. I'm still seeing drones on the landing boards. They're still alive. Had some in the opening video sequence today. So they're still alive. I don't know if they're very happy because I think if they're alive, they're not being fed very well. They're being tossed. But what I want you to look for on your landing boards is if at this time of year, if you're seeing pupa being pulled and dragged out and left on landing boards, that could be a response to disease in your hive, or for a destructor mites really putting pressure on your bees. So we're coming up on that critical end of November, 1st of December opportunity, where I live. It will be our lowest brood time of year. Some colonies may never be without brood. There are people posting pictures on social media stuff right now, the bees on the landing boards, just to bring in pollen. If they're bringing in pollen, very good chance you have open brood. So, but at the, historically speaking, at the end of November, 1st of December if you get a day in the mid 50s with sun where you get 60 and overcast great opportunity to do an oxalic acid vaporization treatment if you know that you have mites still so and uh, yep that's it upcoming this week i'll do a video that shows um, how i set up a way to break up winter so last year i started hyssop plants inside on my sun porch call it that probably doesn't get a lot of sun but uh, used led lights fans and i'll show you because i've collected the segments starting last year falling right on to moving them out planting them outdoors it uh, i understand that that's thinking pretty small i would like to work bigger than that but here's the fun of doing it indoors um, you get to see your seeds germinate, you get to watch them grow, you get to see daily progress, and uh, it's something that breaks up your winter. Plus, it has daylight out there with these big LED panels that are on um, cables, so you can raise and lower them as your plants get taller, right? So I'm gonna show that. That's a video that's coming up. No reason to go through all the details right now. It works on other plants too. Hyssop was a lot of fun. It did fantastic and uh was a great resource for all pollinators not just your bees so bumblebees were all over it it's uh it's a popular plant i'm going to exponentially expand the number of hyssop plants that i'm putting on my property so that's what's going on and uh, that's the end of my friday q a so i want to thank you for being here with me today if you have questions still please go ahead and put them down in the comment section under this video Also, you can follow the link. This is a podcast, so if you just wanna listen to these while you're driving somewhere, you can go to Podbean and type in The Way To Be, and you'll find the podcast. So you can listen, you can watch, you can contribute. If you have something pressing on your mind right now that you can't wait for an answer, you can go to the Facebook group, The Way To Be Fellowship, and join that group have your thoughts shared there get your questions answered right away day or night somebody's awake somebody's there somebody is conversing on that group so it's a great place where we don't tolerate people uh picking on people that may not know that much about beekeeping so thanks for watching i hope you have a fantastic weekend